0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levitson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. If you'd like today's show or any of our previous episodes, we'd appreciate it if you shared these conversations. Share them on social media, send a text to a friend or an email. If you know somebody who likes podcasts, Send them a note and just say, hey, I think you'd like this episode or this episode. The more that people start sharing these conversations, the more we can continue to expand our reach. So thanks to all of you for continuing to support the show. I can't tell you how much it means to me. And if you like today's episode, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Once again, those are the things that help us continue to build this podcast out. Now to today's guest. Torrey Smith is someone whose career I followed. He went to the University of Maryland, played football, and then went up the street to play his professional football with the Baltimore Ravens after being selected in the second round of the draft. And he ended up playing in the NFL for eight years, and he played most of that career with the Ravens, but he also played with the San Francisco 49ers, the Philadelphia Eagles, where he won a Super Bowl. And then he finished his career with the Carolina Panthers. And as I mentioned, he won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. He also won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. So Torrey's going to share what it was like to win a Super Bowl in on two different teams. And what made those teams similar? What did they have in common? What was their culture about? And so you're going to love this conversation because Torrey is a real guy. He's extremely thoughtful guy, and he's also gonna share his upbringing and some of the challenges and trials and tribulations that he had and how he was able to stay focused and disciplined and make the vision that he had for himself in his life become a reality when it comes to playing football at the division one level and then later in the professional ranks and how he also was really focused on on also doing well in school. So as I said earlier, Tori is a thoughtful person. He's definitely an intentional performer. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Tori Smith. Tori. Great to have you on the podcast, thanks for hosting me. I'm not too far from home, it's about 40 minutes from Bethesda, but excited to be here and chat with you and learn about your upbringing, learn about your story, what it was like to play football in the NFL, not too far from here. But give me an idea of your upbringing. So I've, I've read and listened a bit about what life was like for you as a kid, but would love for you to paint that picture for our listeners and, and learn about what life was like for you growing up.
1: And yeah, for me, you know, it's, it was for sure challenging. Um, but uh, I was blessed with some people that did care and love about me, and it, it, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the type of trials that we had to go through. You know, I was the oldest. So who were
0: those? Who were those people that helped you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. Um, I'm the oldest of seven, and uh, life kind of changed uh, a lot for us being in Colonial Beach when we actually had to leave Colonial Beach. Uh, my mother ended up meeting a guy; they fell in love, they were married. And uh, this guy was very abusive and it led to really that was the start of a lot of (laughs) a lot of terrible situations for us. You know, her going in and out of jail, him going in and out of jail, us being evicted um, and, you know, kind of having our family, our siblings to to lean on. And I had a lot of responsibility, you know, really, even then from an early age to provide for them.
0: How old were you when they got married?
1: I was probably in second grade, maybe second, third grade, but even before then, you know, as long as I can remember, I've been able to, you know, cook. That's learning from the microwave to the stove to whatever. It's been an early age doing what I could to to help my mother because she always was the grinder. Um, she worked multiple jobs and to make to make sure that we had everything we we needed. Um, and there were times where we didn't have everything that we needed, but her work ethic. You know, she was gonna do whatever she needed to make sure that we had. And uh, honestly, I, that's kind of how I am today because of watching her. Like even through all of her mistakes, um, all of the things that you know she could have done, I'm sure she's learned from being an adult now. I mean, she had me when she was 16 years old, so she was like a child raising a child. So it was a it was a learning experience for her, and we kind of grew up together. And to watch her work ethic is something that, you know, I take with me each and every day because even though she may not have been perfect, her, her work ethic ethic was.
0: And how about your dad?
1: My father was in the military. Um, he lived down in, uh, North Carolina, Fort Bragg army guy. Um, we didn't have a relationship. I didn't meet him until I was like five or six. We actually have a, a, a good relationship now. Um, but it wasn't that way. You know, he was, he didn't really know how to be a father. Um, from a distance and I mean just in general you know I was the only child they knew of at the time and um, that relationship was never going to happen from the beginning the way I was created you know I was a more of a fling than anything else and you know that it was he just he wasn't there um, but you know uh, now I say present day because I, I say that and we didn't have that type of relationship but now present day because I had my own children that allowed him to be a better father because I was like, well, I'm fine. I'm grown. Um, you know, I don't really need anything from you. Um, nor do I really you know press for anything, but I'll give you the opportunity to have a relationship with, you know, my kids and we'll see what happens out of that. You know, he's been an awesome grandfather.
0: How did him not being in your life impact you as a father today?
1: I mean, it was, it was everything, you know, uh, every male figure that I've had, whether that's a, a positive male figure or a negative male figure impacted the way I am as a father. Um, Just knowing what to do, what not to do, uh, watching the the parents who I traveled with to AAU games or whatever, watch the way um they impacted with their, their wife and their kids. You kind of form this vision of what you want it to look like. And I'm not a perfect father by any means, but I'm very present. My kids know that I love them. i make sure I tell them that I make sure I show them that because I'm, I'm very, um, you know, one of the scars, I would say, from my childhood is my ability to kind of love and to communicate that. So um, it's been a long, a growing process that, honestly, my wife has helped me to realize. So I make sure that my kids, like, they know that it's not awkward. I was the weirdest guy. You say, I love you, I'd be like, Ugh. you know what I mean? Because oftentimes, like, I would hear I love you, but it was after a situation that, Like, there's no way you love me based on this situation and what happened here, you know? Um, So it was always, like, something that I heard in that type of mode, so it didn't have any value to me. So I made sure that, you know, when I have my own kids, that they know I love them, um, it's sincere, it's genuine. I'm not just telling them that, you know, when I'm yelling at them or whatever. You know, it's it's important that they know that and, and feel that.
0: I was really fortunate to have my dad grow up with my dad and him have a massive influence on my life and a role model, no doubt. And someone who I look at, I'm like, yeah, I can maybe do some things that he's done. But as you're telling your story, you talked about, well, maybe there are some things that I would do the opposite of and maybe do differently. What do you think allowed you in your life to decide, Hey, I'm actually, because I saw X, I'm going to do Y.
1: I just, I didn't want. That type of life for, for me as an adult, um, I feel like if you know better, you do better. And I know that sounds hard when you're talking to kids like myself who come from a lot of trauma. It's like, man, like, how can you act differently if this is all you know? Well, I feel like that's an excuse. And I know that sounds bad, or I may not be, might, may not sound that sensitive towards an individual that's living in that situation. But to me, I was like, you know better, you do better. Do you remember how you felt when your dad wasn't there? Okay, then why are you gonna go do this exact same thing to your child? You know, you know what it's like to watch your mother get whooped. Okay, then why are you gonna do the same thing to another woman? You know, those are all things that me it simply makes sense. And um, oftentimes, I get it um, when it comes to the mental makeup and the things you experience. Sometimes it's a lot easier said than done. But for me, I knew um, I wanted stability. You know, my version of success is simply stability. Knowing where you're gonna sleep that night, knowing what you're gonna eat knowing that your bills are going to be paid. And, like, to me, that's stability. So um, success. And I don't care if you're a billionaire or you're the janitor. If you're bringing those things to the table and you're comfortable in that way, your family, like, they don't have to worry about being kicked out or moving. I moved, you know, with my mom. We sat down and counted. It's probably, like, 18 times, eighteen twenty times before I was 16. So it's, like, you got to think about that to me, like, I didn't want that experience for my kids down the line. But ultimately, I realized that I controlled that. I couldn't control what was going on, you know, while I was younger and and coming on up. But I could control my outcome down the future. And I say all of that to say even though we were in a lot of challenges, uh, a challenging situation, I'm experienced a lot of trials. My mother's expectations for me academically never changed. I was always expected to be the best and do the best regardless of what kind of BS we were living through at the time, you know? And, uh, that kind of made me, you know, who I was as well. I feel like I'm battle tested. I feel like there's not a, uh, a, a challenge out here that I can't overcome even though it may frustrate me, even though it may hurt. Um, there's nothing that, you know, I can, I can't overcome.
0: You said you're one of seven. Did your siblings share your mindset?
1: No, I <laughs> actually no. Um, I'm like, so I'm the oldest and, you know, you think you kind of model in a way. But, you know, even my relationship with my siblings is kind of weird because I was more like a father figure than like a brother. Um, And so and what I mean by that is obviously I was the oldest and I had a lot of power. My mother trusted me, you know, in terms of make sure that everyone was in line. But, you know, while I walked a straight line, it's a lot. I'm not going to say it's a lot easier, you know. I kind of was able to protect them from a lot of things, um, to keep them away from certain things. And when I went to college, things kind of went south mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't there to, you know, to keep certain people away because I was always comfortable in my own skin. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say I didn't have friends who were doing things that I knew they shouldn't be doing. I have a lot of friends and family that I love, you know, to death that do things that, you know, they probably shouldn't be doing. But, um, I never let that you know be who I was gonna be with at all times. you know every every relationship ha has its place, and just because you love someone, you care for someone don't mean you have to be attached to them. And I was never a follower. I was comfortable doing everything going forward. If it didn't align with where I was trying to go, it wasn't for me. So you I was able to do that with people and with you know with really everything.
0: you think you were born with that, or is that something you picked up at a young age or what, how do you make sense of all that?
1: I don't know. My mom always says I was different. Um, she always said that. She was like, well, that's why her standards for me were me (laughs) with me, were through the roof versus even my siblings, which I always crush her for that. I'm like, well, you're the reason why they did it, (laughs) you know, but my, her standards for me were were crazy. So I guess she did see something different, but um, I mean, again, I just learned that, you know, you got to control what you can control.
0: There's interesting research around post-traumatic stress, which people know about the military or people that grew up in environments that are traumatic, um, but there's also something called post post-traumatic growth, which has found that there is this steep incline that can occur when people face trauma. It that pain can trigger a drive that and a desire to grow at an exponential clip. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing that sort of mindset. It's like, okay, I've seen this stuff. I want to make sure that. I don't live that going forward. The people that I care about don't, don't have that experience. And it almost is that growth. And post-traumatic growth does not minimize post-traumatic stress. And certainly the environment that your siblings grew up with, especially when, when you were off in college, we all know, hopefully people know the odds and the statistics and how environment can impact someone's life. But as I'm talking about post-traumatic growth, how does that sit with you?
1: I mean, I think for me, I I think that's what it is, you know. Again, that post-traumatic growth to me is like, you know, you know better, you do better. You learn from those experiences. Um, is it easy? No. Like, I, it's, I tell people all the time, like, it it is hard to do the right thing, you know, when you come from a certain environment and everyone's doing the same thing and everyone's comfortable with where they are. And it's not even that everyone's comfortable. It's just that so many people are in the same situation that, it appears like there's no hope or way out of the situation, right? Despair. Like, exactly. And so I'm telling you that um, the same experiences that I experienced, it wasn't anything crazy because I knew 10, 20 different people in the exact same situation. So it's, you know, unless you are able to see other things, you don't even realize that the situation you're in is 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 even a bad situation at times, you know? Because it's like that's the norm until you experience otherwise. And that's just like, When you come into certain communities, you talk to kids who may be impoverished. Like they don't even realize they're poor because of everything that around them. Everyone's the same type of thing, right? Where there tends to be poverty, there tends to be violence, there tends to be a lot of different things—crime, people tied to the criminal justice system, like so many different things. And if that's your norm, you don't see any different. Like you don't really know any better. And so for me, I I knew like that—that wasn't it, you know. And I was thankful that I had. People around me, my educators, mentors, coaches, whoever it may have been, now that showed me that there was a different way.
0: Do you think you would have found that way without football?
1: I would like to say so, yeah, you know, uh sports for me was always my outlet, and it's hard to say i think when I say without football, I think in terms of the you know the college and the NFL um I knew I had to earn a scholarship and it wasn't going to be uh school wasn't going to be free for me and I understood student loans because my mom was paying them <laughs> so I understood that She went to college Uh and- she went to community college received her associates and all of that even you know my mother uh has the tag that some people like to call a uh, convicted felon and so for her she continued to educate herself through that process and she was able to get her rights you um, know restored or her record restore Her rights restore, which is why she's fine today. Um, but I watched that. Again, that's a part of that grind and she had hope. And oftentimes with people who are in that in the criminal justice system are stuck, it's like, man, you don't see a way out. And she continued to believe after being told no a million times. And eventually it broke through and you know, she's fine now.
0: I'm just interested in so so she went to community college.
1: But I she, remember sitting in class with her. Wow! At Community College, yeah, eighteen Rappahannock Community College. Wow! In Tappahannock, Virginia, I remember sitting in class, yeah. and you know, I was in elementary school.
0: Hmm. And she still, even though she was in debt and things didn't work out, even though she prioritized academics for herself, she still felt like that was the path that you had to focus on as a kid.
1: Yeah, she knew that you know the education was the key to financial freedom. You know, you a lot. And there aren't too many people in too many blue-collar jobs where we're from that you can make that type of living where you're successful. I mean, she had multiple kids, so she had a lot of responsibility that she placed on herself by having these kids. But, you know, um, you can't work at McDonald's and expect to provide in that way. Um, and not even that, I'm not saying as a, a knock to anyone who worked at, at McDonald's because my mother for sure worked at Hardee's. Um, she worked hard labor jobs, but these are things that she had to do because of the decision that she made. So I understood that, like, your choices can put you in a tough situation, regardless of how good of a person you are at, at in your heart. Um, you make a decision, you know, this system will put you in a place where it's going to be an uphill battle for you th- to even provide for yourself, regardless of your work ethic. So, you know, my mother was working double shifts. Like, I would see her and sometimes just asleep. You know, she'll leave the food out and say, can you cook this? Or that, or tell me what to do, what to cook, or whatever for the kids. But I'm doing that. I'm helping them with homework, getting them baths, giving them baths, getting them dressed for school, ironing their clothes, whatever it may have been. And she's trying to catch up on any kind of sleep she can before she goes back out, you know. So um, I watched her grind, and she had hope. But a lot of people in that situation, when you are in the system, you kind of lose that hope because – it's tough being told no so many times. I think a lot of people can relate to that, whether you've, you in, in the same type of way a person goes to college and you get that degree, and like, all right, I'm ready, world. Like, I'm here. And you go to that job interview, no. Where's your experience? Or you're not qualified or whatever it may be, right? You get told no, and you get told no over and over and over again. But you're not even being told no because of, you don't have the ability, you're being told no because of something that you've done and and that may have been 10 years ago, and you feel like you're a different person, but ultimately you're going to be tied to the system.
0: Decision to not drink or smoke is actually something I hear often from pro athletes. Um, I hear it more from pro athletes than I do from the people that I grew up around in Montgomery County. Talk about that decision and and how that has impacted you and what effect it's had on your life.
1: I mean, when you see... I told you earlier that if it didn't align, if people didn't align with what I was trying to accomplish, then I wasn't going to be with them. You know, I wanted to earn a scholarship. You know, that's for me, that was military or, or ball. Um, I didn't know which ball it was going to be, but it ended up being you play football. played basketball, too. Basketball, football, you know, baseball was my favorite sport when I was younger. And it's like I didn't know which one it was going to be, but I knew that drinking or smoking wasn't going to help me at, at any of that. It um, wasn't going to help me study. It wasn't going to help put me in the best situation period, I can get in trouble, I can do whatever. Like that wasn't an option for me. But when you look, and my mother's ex-husband, you know, was on drugs. And when you see how it can change a person, and when you have family members that you love and care about, that's not him. Other family members that, you know, real family members that you love and care about. And they have their challenges with addiction. And when you see them when they're high versus when they're not, and they're two different people, like that stuff is crippling. You know, it's like, why would I even put myself in that environment? Um, I've had family members at every generation. It's almost like a generational curse in my family. To there are people who are were addicted to something. I don't know how my mom didn't fall victim to uh, addiction, but uh, I have so many family members, and to see them, and there's nothing positive that ever came out of it. So for me, is it was a no-brainer. Like this isn't for me.
0: Was religion a part of your upbringing?
1: I mean, I went to church. I wouldn't say that um, it was huge uh, because I I struggled uh, in my faith a lot at times um, when I was younger because, you know, they tell you to believe that someone loves you that you can't see or or touch. And I'm struggling with that within my own household. Um, So that was a challenge for me. It took me a while to get over. Um, but now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely strong in my faith and, you know, I, I believe that, you know, everything happened that way for a reason and for me to understand more.
0: When did that change?
1: College. um, Really in college. You know, I attended, I, I will say I attended church when I could, um, but it wasn't, I wasn't living that way. So, you know, I'm going to church and I'm just going to church and I feel really good then and I'm doing whatever else there a college student can do besides drinking and smoking, and it's just like, you know, this, like, this isn't the way I'm supposed to live. Um, this isn't maximizing me and who I'm supposed to be. Um, so, I mean, while I'm saying that to you and I'm still not perfect by any means, um, it made me realize that I had so much more and I couldn't be the best, you know, man that I could possibly be if I wasn't the best and strongest man of faith that I could be.
0: The Greeks talked about strength being mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And as I'm hearing your story, it's clear that you had this mental discipline, you had this mindset, you had a vision for where you wanted to go. I want to get a scholarship. Physically, you don't get to play football at a high level if physically you're not taking care of yourself for most people. Um, Spiritually, you just hit on... But the one piece I'm curious about, you kind of talked about it when you said how you need to be emotional with your kids and love them and how you maybe grew up with this idea of like not having that piece. I'm curious, have you done any work on your own emotions and how emotion impacts your own behavior and how you think about emotions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I probably need to go to a counselor. Uh <laughs> but seriously, my wife, um, has been the reason why I've even realized so many things. I realized I built up walls. Um, That's the terminology that I came up with. I'm sure it's some real, like, therapy uh, type of analogy. But for me, I realized I built up so many walls um, because of things that I experienced. And you don't realize it until someone comes and and reminds you of it. And, you know, you figure out, you know, what makes you upset. You know, uh, why are you, in my case, why are you so cold hearted? told so many things like, why are you, you know, why don't you trust people like that? Why don't you, um, you know, you, you people, you know, share that you can see that you love them by your actions. But, you know, I, like my wife says all the time, like people think you're mean. I'm like, I'm, I'm just by, because I'm blunt, I'm straight up. Right. Cause I, my childhood, like, I don't have time for, you know, playing around and BS excuses. Like you're going to tell me what it is and I can accept it. Like, I'm not, I'm not depressed. person oh, you have to sugarcoat it. No, like, hit me straight. And I've always felt that way because when you're going through things and someone's BSing around it, and you see what the end result is and you realize that you were played with, it's like it takes you to a certain level. And so as an adult... Like, I have zero tolerance for that stuff. I'm like, man, be straight up. I can deal with it. Even if it's news that I don't want to hear, like, I can deal with it. But when you're stringing it along and you're dragging it on out, like, I like to deal with things like right now and keep it moving.
0: It's fascinating because I think sports for a long time has rewarded non emotional athletes, especially your sport. Yes, sir, no, sir. uh, Do your job. Just run your route, block. It's football. In a similar way to the military, it's like, get in line and, and do what you're supposed to do. And are you coachable? Are you going to show up on top? Like, it's, it's got that mindset. But the military is changing as well, because they've realized that if you don't address emotion, it that emotion will go somewhere. And that's what you see with the post-traumatic stress is a lot of these guys are trained to be killers. And they go off to war and they know how to do their job well, but then they come back and they can't acclimate into society. They can't transition into society. And playing sports is different than being at war. But I think in a similar way, a lot of athletes are trained to not show emotion or to be stoic or to not let their emotion come out. And I think it's short-sighted because I think you can play with emotion without being emotional. Mm -hmm and there's wonderful work by a woman named Brené Brown on vulnerability and she's found that vulnerability isn't aligned with courage and as a young man regardless of where you're from we're taught that courage is a good thing like courageousness those are our heroes whether it's Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Eleanor Roosevelt or pick pick whoever you read about it's because they're courageous yet vulnerability is thought of as a weakness and i think about locker rooms and I, we'll get to football and you've played on two super bowl teams but i would bet that there's an emotional connection that transpires that is vulnerable that is willing to open yourself up to something more than yourself that transpires but i think there's this misconception that emotions are bad mm-hmm. and i don't think they're necessarily good or bad i think it's are you authentic are you real are you being courageous and I think there's this misconception that we teach a lot of starting in high school. And I've worked with a lot of high school athletes that you need to shut those emotions out when you're in the, you know, put walls up, Mm -hmm. put walls up. And especially when people are coming from environments where they have to put walls up to your point to survive. Like I need to shut that person out or I need to not hang on the corner or whatever it might be. But those, if you put those walls up the rest of your life, you're missing a part of humanity that is really, really special. Um, So I just riffed a little bit but I'm curious to get your thoughts on everything I'm no, talking about. No, I think about.
1: that's I think that's real. Um a perfect example is like I've been a I was always weird when it came to receiving support. Like I and I realized that you know I always felt like I don't need anybody, you know, like I'm fine. I'm I'm a, I'm I'm be fine by myself. Like I'm good. I'm always fine by myself. Doesn't matter what's going on. I'm always fine. And my wife kind of because my girlfriend at the time, kind of alerted me to one of the challenges that I, one of the walls that I had built up that I didn't even realize. Um, we played games, and I was at the University of Maryland, and, you know, obviously, you know, I was balling, having a good old time out there, and families come up, you know. Um, my, my wife, now, now girlfriend at the time, would be in the stands, and all the players kind of waved to their families, like, say hi, you know, and all of that, and I'm just looking straight ahead. Never look. Never looking back, never, I don't care who was there. I know they told me that they were coming i don't I didn't care like I'm just focused on the game. that's what I told myself. I'm just focused on the game, and then we were talking about it, and she was like, "My wife, you know she's very supportive and loving, and all of the things that I'm not, <laughs> and she's like, well why don't you look back you know i'm I'm trying to support you, and I want you to know that I'm here to support you and I'm just like I'm fine. Like, I'm by myself. I'm good. Like, if you're there, you're there. If you're not, you're not. Like, and I meant that. You know, but I realized that it was only that way because I used to invite people and people would tell me they would come and I would look back and they weren't there. And so all them years, I told myself, you just focus on the game and then you'll see whoever after the game. Because if they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. And then I realized that once I started kind of opening up in that way, um... You know, I started to look back. Like, I I realized that I appreciated having people, you know, to support me and, and know that, especially her knowing that she was there. But I didn't know that. Um, I didn't even realize that I enjoyed it. But it was something that I for sure had built up. I mean, people would literally be pushing me on my shoulder like, Tori, Tori, your mom's waving. Tori Chanel's waving. And I'm just like <laughs> looking straight ahead. Like, they'll be all right. Like, I'll see you afterwards. And, um, you know, all through the pros now, you know. I knew where they were. Like a wave. you know, my last year in Carolina, um could wave see my son, you know, before games going out the tunnel in Philadelphia. My son would be right there. I can get my high five before I go out the tunnel for the starting lineups. I mean, and those are all things that probably would have never happened or I would have even appreciated had I stayed the same and and kept that wall up.
0: What makes a, a Super Bowl champion team? What are the you know, like obviously talent. We know you need to have talent to win. You need to have great players. But you're on two Super Bowl champion teams, you know, especially the last one with the Eagles, an unexpected run. Um, but what what are the things that you noticed between those two teams that made them able to do something special?
1: I think it was the culture. You know, people believed in each other. Obviously you have to have the talent, right? I think any championship team you have to have the talent. But it's the NFL most teams have players that you can win with but the culture i mean both teams believed in each other Um, both teams held each other accountable had great leadership from the top down leadership that was able to communicate well and leadership that trusted the players in terms of when you go in a situation where you feel your voice doesn't matter sometimes that can create a a rift between players and um coaches, especially when you know, like, you know, some of these coaches (laughs) nowadays, they're almost the same age as the players, you know, you want to just make sure that you matter and that you're respected, even though you got to ultimately go with the coach's vision and what they want and their expectations. But if you feel like you had kind of have a seat at the table, those relationships tend to function a little better. And that was the case on both of those teams. great relationships between the players and the coaches um, held each other accountable worked hard and ultimately were resilient where it would overcome the tough moments when you're down, um, make the big play when you need it. And that's what tends to happen. You know, when you're on the teams that are standing at the end.
0: So when I think of culture, I think of emotion, right? You just talked about trust, respect, communication. It's the same thing you're talking about with your wife, right? Trust, respect, communication. That is an emotional, that's a heart. That's a heart thing. That is, do i trust you do we communicate do we have a relationship um it, so for me that's where that emotional spark has to come in and everyone talks about the patriots and you know this mantra of do your job and all that but like i've watched the patriots and listen to them when they're mic'd up after they win the super bowl and all they're saying to each other is i love you i love you i love you i love you like looking each other in the eye and just hugging each other and saying i love you and like that's that's emotion that is a heartbeat that is a connection and I, I, like i think that emotional spirit and that emotional heartbeat is often what's what's not talked about right we talk about mindset we talk about the physical we talk about spiritual Um, you go into any locker room, there's a spiritual, well, at least some people have this spiritual connection and it's often talked about physical is obvious. And then mindset is something that probably still needs to be talked about more, but that emotional piece is, is something that I think that's culture. It is. What is the emotional heartbeat? What is the connection? And if everyone is only just isolated, it's not going to be as powerful than when we're all connected together. Um, so I wanna just connect the dots a little bit for you. You go to University of Maryland, you play football there. At what point does your your vision change from, I don't wanna get a scholarship, which now you've got at Maryland, to I wanna play at the next level and do this for a living? When does that start to come into your vision and, and your mindset?
1: Well, my vision, my mindset was always to work and take advantage of every opportunity. And I came to college and I wanted to graduate in three years. And why is that? I mean, because I knew if I, I had opportunity to redshirt, so you have three academic school years on campus, and you know, you're a sophomore. I could have been done by before my redshirt. I ended up redshirting, which for those who don't know what redshirting is, um, basically your first year you sit out, but it counts as an academic year. And I ended up redshirting and leaving as a redshirt junior. But my last year, I only took my last, what ended up being my last season, I only took two classes. I could have graduated that summer
0: in three years,
1: in three, and therefore I would have had another three semesters and a summer to work on my master's. And for me, that was my plan just academically how can I maximize the situation?
0: What were you studying?
1: Uh, criminal justice
0: and master's. What was my it? master's?
1: Where I probably would have been in business, okay, in some way, shape, or form. I wanted to understand numbers, and I wanted to say, but. Because you can't go to, you know, I probably would have tried to go to law school. I was, I'm was, i a debate guy for those who know me. I like to argue everything. Uh, so that would have been something that I'm sure would have happened had Ball not, you know, been the case for me. But I just locked in and focused on being the best student that I could be and being the best athlete that I can be. So I was working hard. I was doing the extra things I needed to do physical. Understanding that you can't make the NFL happen. The NFL was not a thought in my mind. Like I remember seeing Darius Hayward Bay get drafted. I'm like, this is crazy. I was with him all summer and this dude was the number eight pick or whatever it was in the draft. And it was a crazy thing, crazy thing to I am mean, like, man, that's something that I can do. You could
0: feel it now. You could see it. You're like you're yeah, playing with you him every day. It. You're like, he's fast, but right. I, I can I can run with him. You I can know? play with yeah, him. Yeah, you
1: see all of that. And you're like, man, that's something I can do. Mm. But it didn't I didn't need to hope and wish on that. I just need to work and, and trust my process. Mm. If I take care of business here, if I take care of A, B will happen. right so I wasn't gonna go and focus on the NFL all of a sudden I'm slipping in school and you know working out I might be complacent because I'm worrying about this or whatever it may be and I just continue to trust my process which was to control what you can control like I can't make a team draft me I can't make a team you know want me but I can work hard and be the best player that can be so therefore my talent shines the way it should shine and then that can happen so I always just focus on that process and it became clear, you know, going into my freshman uh, junior year, you know, I was already one of the top receivers in the country, and um, I was knew I was going to graduate. School was a breeze taking those two classes that fall semester <laughs> after being loaded all those years, and you know, I just really locked in on ball and had my best season to date.
0: How was your transition from high school to college and going from, you know, a different environment? Look, College Park. Uh, It's a big campus. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a complicated place in a lot of ways because there's plenty of not great areas surrounding the campus. Um, But what was that transition like moving away from home, knowing that you're leaving the six siblings behind um, who need you? Uh, That freshman year, you redshirted that freshman Mm -hmm. year, so you're not playing on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that transition your freshman year?
1: Speaking of the redshirt, they wanted me to play. And my high school coach told me the red shirt just to adjust. You know, he's like, it's new. He had the opportunity to just focus on school. It's different. He's like just. He was like, just take your time. You think that
0: was the right decision?
1: It definitely was the right decision. Um, at the time, I didn't want that to be the case.
0: Because you wanted a ball. Yeah,
1: I wanted to play. Like, you go from playing your whole life, you know, and I played quarterback in high school. And also, I knew I was going to play receiver in college. And then, you know, you think it's going to take time or whatever. And then they're coming to me like, the beginning of the season, like, hey, we want you to be kick returner. Like, I wasn't even on their radar as a kick returner. I had to put myself in on scout team for them to see that I could return kicks, you know, because everyone in college, like, you you go to college, you're not just the only kick returner. Everyone was a kick returner. Every skill guy, every DB, every every receiver, like, everyone was that returner on their team. And so I had to try to get my way in. You know, we had a receiver that was rated higher than I was. And he was a very good returner. Um, he happened to he ended up being the punt returner all ACC, and I ended up being the kick returner all ACC. But um, over time, you know, just the mindset of of waiting it it just made too much sense. And I knew the adjustment for me it wasn't hard at all. Um, I was able to put the fun aside to make sure that I took care of my business. Now I'm not sitting here. I'm not going to tell you that I didn't go out. Um, I was out. Often, I didn't drink, but I would be out um if my work was done <laughs> if you... I had the opportunities if I had the freedom.
0: What did you learn that freshman year?
1: The freshman year I learned that pete you can blow this opportunity. I saw it you know guys that get real comfortable, you caught up in going to parties, you caught up in the girls, you caught up in whatever. And you're not taking care of the reason why you even came to this school. And for me, that's that was the one thing. Again, I've always been big on. I don't have to make a mistake for myself when I can learn from other people. And that was my whole mindset. I was the guy that I was going hard in practice, and I knew I wasn't going to play. All right? I was. They used to want to destroy me in practice because of how hard I was going. They're like, man, you're practicing way too hard. I'm catching the ball, one hand over people's heads, blowing by them, making them miss. You know, and I learned later on why they were mad. You know, you're a little more sore when you're actually playing. But, you know, I just, over time, like, I'm like, man, I can't. I'm trying to be the best version of me. And and being lazy and just being complacent, just going through the motions isn't going to work. And I ended up being scout team player of the year. That's probably one of the most important notches on my resume. Because, and I tell people about that because, like, they say, oh, man, you played... You know, eight years, and I really could have kept playing if it wasn't for this knee, and I still could have played, but I have a little bit of uh, I'm, I'm a different way of thinking when it comes to my body and this game. But when it to be scout team player of the year, when I'm gaining nothing but experience for myself, just getting better for myself. Yes, I'm helping my teammates get better, um, but at the same time, it was about developing me, and that was kind of a, a sign of, like, They appreciated the work that I was putting in. And, you know, that's a really cool award to me at a position in most sports where people look down on the guys that are on the scout team.
0: It's so interesting because I work with college teams and I see transfers come in and they often have to sit out a year when they're transferring. And all they do is focus on getting better. Like their job is just to get better, there's no pressure to to make sure that they're ready for game day or there's no worries about their body being hundred percent on game day. They can just focus on developing and growing. And I worked with a pro basketball player once who transferred in college. And he told me if he didn't do that transfer, he didn't think he'd be playing pro ball because the way in which he was able to develop his skills during that, that year, quote unquote off, uh, he was like, all I needed to focus on was developing and growing And I think that that idea of growing and developing is so crucial and often gets lost in the day-to-day work that needs to take place. And a lot of athletes struggle to develop themselves because they're just trying to execute to win. Um, And you want to have that balance, right? You need to have that balance of we need to win and there's things that we need to do to win. But I also need to develop and grow for the team and for myself.
1: And my approach is always, again, if I focus on developing, the wins are going to come. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get caught up in, oh, man, I want to I wanna play right away. Well, if you focus on the grind at being better, you're going to play right away. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you can't have one without the other, in my opinion. And when you do, you, your mindset gets wrapped up in the wrong thing. So what I've learned is to fall in love and to trust your process and know that the results will come from it.
0: Let's move to the NFL. So Tom Coughlin wrote a book called Earn the Right to Win actually a great book. And it actually talks about how he had to change his mindset as he became older and had to learn how to adjust to younger guys. And it was a great book, unexpectedly great book. (laughs) Um, And uh, in it, he he has some gems, but one of the gems that I'll I'll list, two of them, two takeaways for me. One was, he said, you earn your paycheck Monday through Saturday in the NFL. Sunday should be free. But right. but you really earn it Monday through Saturday. And then he also said something that changed the way that I look at the way I work with athletes, which is you need to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And those two things combined made me think about, all right, Monday through Saturday, how am I being humble? To your point earlier, how, how am I humbling myself to get help? Hey, ask your wide receiver coach, what do you notice? What do you see? Watch film. Uh, perfect my steps. Perfect anything that I need to Monday through Saturday, take care of my body the way I need to take care of it. So that when I step between the lines on Sunday, I can be confident. And then also this idea that Sundays are free and that I'm a pro Monday through Saturday and Sunday, I need to play like a kid. I'm curious for you how football is so routine oriented. Obviously we have Thursday night games. We sometimes have Saturday games, Monday night, Sunday night, but let's just use that Monday to Saturday with Sunday being game day. Talk about what you would do preparing a week and then your mindset on game day when it was time to go perform
1: i mean that his thought process is the nfl mindset you know you you handle everything during the week i love to say i had a, a receiver coach named jim hoston he was like well i'm not gonna waste time with it on sundays if you don't know it by now based on what we did all week then you're not gonna know it all right so you work during the week so then you can be free on sunday coach Jim the receiver coach now currently at the Redskins, but I was with him in the Ravens and then uh, the Panthers before I ended up being released. He would be on you all week, the details, every little thing. And then when game day comes, he's not saying a single word because he knew that you put your work in and you get it. He put his work in, making sure that we had it, and it's time to just go out there and play ball. You can't be out there stressing out. You know, I tell people, I use the analogy all the time, when I studied for a test, I felt good walking into that test. When I didn't study, I'm sweating bullets. Like, man, how am I going to wing this and make this work? And that's how it is on game days and the preparation of the week. When you prepare, you're confident. That's all preparation does just breed confidence. At the end of the day, it just brings confidence. No matter what happens, you know that you have this in your process, ultimately, that you can fall back on. And that was it for me. You know, I, I studied uh in film, I more so studied the individuals who I had to play against versus the schemes because I played long enough. And honestly, the way they prepared us at Maryland, I understood coverages. So if I know what a team's doing, and I don't have to know what a team's doing. I could line up against a team right now, not know a single thing about what their coverages are and what they play, but I can look at the defense and know what they play. All right. And that just comes from just time in the years of the way I was taught, and I'm thankful for that. Like It wasn't a huge adjustment for me. But the details of that individual, how does he line up? Um, what are his tendencies? Is he a person that jumps routes, right? Do I have to be on my P's and Q's? You know, and is he going to get, be aggressive in the run game or is he just trying to take himself out of plays? Like these are all things that that kind of matter. And that way, you know, you, you know the individual more than it's, it. that's when it becomes about the individual matchups that it's on you to, to find those details.
0: I want to stay on Monday through Saturday and then we'll circle back to Sunday You mentioned at Maryland that that redshirt year, you were able to just ball out and you said you slid in something there where you said, I understood later why those guys were a little mad at me is because they were sore and they needed to get themselves ready for Saturday for college football, but let's just use Sunday for the NFL. How did you manage yourself and especially as you got older, you're talking about the knee how did you manage your preparation and become more efficient as you got older? Mm-hmm. Um, like I work with a pro football player right now. And he talks about like, how do I go a hundred percent in practice and sometimes 120 when I think our team needs it while still making sure I'm fresh come week 10, week 11, week 12. I mean, this is a physical sport. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious how you, I won hundred percent. You just did.
1: Yeah. That's, that's the only thing I know I can't, in, literally from individuals, the individual session of practice where you're doing your stance and starts, you're getting your simple catches, you're building up to the routes on airs with the quarterback, you're getting your feet going. That is like the layup line of basketball. Like when you're going through the layup lines, you're feeling really confident. All of a sudden you're shooting your jumpers, you're feeling really good. That's the start for me to my practice. I get out of the practice 30 minutes before to do things to get my body ready for the day. Um, and I always... Felt like you practice how you play. So I mean, you, you play how you practice.
0: So, but I would imagine there's an element that so I'm practicing with the mindset that it's game day, and then there's maybe other things you're doing throughout the day that are more technical or more you have to perfect. You need to make sure that things are exactly where they need to be.
1: Right. I mean, that's what that's what the practice for. You know, when they're giving you the look of the schemes that they're playing, but I try to take in my mind. You know, they're literally wearing the jersey number of that individual who we are learning to study about. So I try to figure out how they're playing it. But ultimately, I know that regardless of what he does, if I do my job, I feel like he can't stop me. So I can't be out here jogging around trying to half tail it when I know that this play is designed for me. You better figure out other ways. Now, there's times a receiver, you know, look, this isn't yours, right? I was going full speed because that's all I know. Um, It's hard to be a guy, especially, you know, the way I play the game in terms of stretching the field. It's hard to not sprint and go and try to track that ball down, which is the hardest thing to do in football, and then go on Sundays and try to just make it happen. Like, no, like I want the full rep. Like sometimes they try to, oh, we're going to save your legs. Like, no, let me go. Like I'm trying to work because So you
0: didn't even adjust as you got older, it was always no, that.
1: I was trying to go yeah. at all time cuz I wanted to get a look I wanted to get a feel of it. You know, when I when they call that special play that we have up, I bring back that feeling of in practice and you see that coverage and it looks just like that. And it's like I've already been here.
0: And then game day, what's your routine like and just walk us through what it's like to wake up In the morning, I think you guys stay at a hotel usually the night before, even at home. Most teams do that. Mm -hmm. So walk people through what game day is like. And for me, at least, the more you can visualize this and and put people, make it vivid, Mm -hmm. I almost want it to be like, it's an (laughs) avatar, right? And they're inside you right now, and they're seeing what you see, because most people don't experience that. They might go to the tailgate, drink and eat barbecue, and then show up and cheer Mm -hmm but i th- I've always been fascinated by game day routines because I think it's what primes you to go compete and perform and I've always been astonished by how some pro athletes are really intentional with that and some maybe aren't and like I had Matt Stover on the podcast and how intentional he was oh in- absolutely the kicker uh, kickers i mean but but I've even had like kick- I had Brian Mitchell kick returner on the podcast and we we talk about this and so like to me I know the pro the pros pros, like this routine and how they think about game day is usually pretty intentional. So I'd love to know the things that you would do intentionally to set your mind to get ready to go compete and perform.
1: Yeah, besides the meals, um think they, they kinda speak for themselves. I'm a person that I'm the hangry guy. If I don't eat, I don't function the same. <laughs> what would but, you what would you eat on game um, day? Um on game day, just depends. Breakfast, um me, one o'clock games, I'm gonna eat. You know, I can I can eat more of a breakfast type foods, you know, get your oatmeal. I can eat eggs. I can eat certain things. But, you know, in the evening meals, uh, we play four o'clock night game. Then I'm going to focus on more of a pasta type. You know, I I don't know. It's weird. So they have breakfast out there for you, but I just think it's weird to eat breakfast before a game that late. Um, But in terms of more routine, for me, my routine generally consists of uh, just glancing at my notes. You know, Uh, I don't, I try not to watch too much film and get, caught up in uh feeling like i missed something or there's one more thing like no i did enough during the week i'm fine but i do like to double check back on the notes if there's a mistake i made earlier in the week make sure that i glance at that again i typically when i make a mistake i don't make it again because i've heard it and i felt it that's kind of the way i kind of go about things so uh i'll just go back look at my notes um Again, see what that player has going on. Uh see what things I could have done better and what I needed to work on and, and what's gonna be the difference for me and, and our offense as a whole. And then when we get the field, my warm up is the exact same for the game as it is for practice. Um and so that feels the same to me. You know, I'm ready to roll. I don't I take warm-ups seriously. Um, you know, when we're out there and we're running routes. I'm not jogging through it. You know, the lights in the stadium are a little bit different than they are on your practice field. So when we're running routes on there with the quarterbacks. My routes are real. Like I'm getting out of my breaks. I am going because I need to know how it feels. I need to feel the grass. I need to know, is the grass slippery? Is it going to come up? It's like Pittsburgh whose grass sucks, right? Is it long where, you know, you make it stuck a little more. Is it turf field where it's going to be simple, but, did it rain is the fit is the turf wet to where to whereas it might be a little sick and you don't know these things unless you went full speed on it and i walk up that field feeling confident about you know my my footing and and getting in and out of my brakes. and ultimately i've caught the ball feeling those lights and it's a little bit different it's not when when even when fans come in right so it, it all these things are a little different but to me it's like man i'm, I'm ready to go
0: what do you think about during the national anthem
1: during the National Anthem, I just simply say a prayer and, you know, ready to roll that thing on and out and get ready to go.
0: Catch a 50-yard touchdown. What's going on in your head after you catch it?
1: I lose my mind in that stadium. You know, that's the thing I love about being I love about, being, the thing I love right about being in this position is that when you go and there's nothing like catching a bomb for a touchdown. So many things had to go right for you to get to that point. Um, it's not like you... When you take a slant, which is the coolest to do, to take a slant and just split everyone, just run past everyone, that's that's sweet. But a deep bomb, you know, the 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 O line had to protect their tails off. The quarterback may have had to uh he has to make a great throw, look off the safety or whatever it may be, and he might be on his back and not even see the ball being thrown. And then you get to seal the deal and you're running, you know, you're running before the ball it's thrown, you you release, you're getting off the ball, you're sprinting, and you hear that, ah, and you know that ball's up. But the crowd's like, you can literally hear and feel like the crowd just, ah, and then you catch it and you hear the crowd just go crazy. Like it's one of the best rushes. And that's probably one of the things I miss most about not playing, just that rush and how you can control the crowd the same way you catch it, Uh, In the same way, when you don't make the play, you drop it, and you deflate the crowd, Like that adrenaline and that responsibility is the coolest.
0: What do you say to yourself when you drop it
1: after? Damn. (laughs) No, I mean, it's disappointing, man. You, You have to have the next play mentality, but it's so disappointing at receiver when you drop the ball because you can kill momentum. But again, I just told you how many things have to happen for you to even get the ball. And then everyone did their job but you. And that's why it's the ultimate team sport. You know, all 11 guys have to be doing their job. And oftentimes, even if everyone doesn't do their job as a receiver, you can be the one that changes that and, and, and makes the big play. You know, one of the linemen may have got beat and the quarterback scrambling for his life. He makes the play to you. You may be able to split it and do whatever. And next thing you know, his job, because he got whooped, it didn't really matter because you were able to pick up the slack.
0: You mentioned next play. Would you say anything to yourself to get yourself back to the present and get back to that that spot?
1: Hey, just let's go. You mm-hmm. know, come on now, let's go, let's go. You know, that's why I like to visualize it. And that jog of shame back is the worst feeling, especially when they, it's a big game. You see that little camera just following along you. <laughs> but no, it's uh, it's it's like I said, it's a lot of pressure that being in that situation. But you know, that's what you want. You know, if you're a competitor and you believe in yourself. I've always – my receiver coach, again, Jim Hostel, used to tell me, when you drop it – because I used to be really down on myself. Um, If you drop the ball, he said, I want you to get up and act like you meant to drop it. And he didn't mean, like, you know, continue to be out here dropping balls, dude, because it's a performance league. If you keep dropping it, you're not going to have a job. But what he meant was the confidence. Like, don't – Change it to me. Don't change anything that you're doing. Like, you know how to catch the ball. You've made plays. You've been in these moments. Like, just keep on going and make the next one.
0: So I took Tom Coughlin's idea of humble in preparation, confident in performance, and decided to write a whole book with that sort of idea of your preparation mind is actually different than your performance mind. And so I have these binaries, and I'm going to get to them in a minute. And to be clear, what you were doing in practice when you would go hundred percent to me is practicing the performance mind absolutely, and the film work and all the other stuff is, is the preparation mind. So I think you need both to really fulfill your potential. And one of the binaries is perfectionism in preparation, but adaptability in performance. So I'm going to try to make everything as perfect as possible when I'm preparing. But I know when I get between the lines, it's very rare that it's going to be go perfect. So I need to be adaptable and adjustable and so I think what your coach is talking about is like, if you put in all the work and you've been humble, you've earned the right to not just be confident, but to be a little arrogant, like to believe in yourself so unconditionally that you know, like, yeah, throw me the ball next time. I'm catching that damn thing. And you, you need to look me in the eye, quarterback, and know that- That ain't happening again. And that is almost a step up from confidence because it's this unshakable belief in yourself that you're the right person for the job. Coach, put me back in there. Let me go return a kick or let me go return a punt, right? And that is something a step up. So I'm curious for you, it sounds like there's a level of perfectionism that you had, even when you're talking about what you're putting into your body and how you're showing up. But how are you able to be adaptable when you're between the lines, um, when you're in that performance mode?
1: I mean, you just have to. That's just the nature of the game. You know, things aren't going to always go your way, and you have to be able to adjust. Uh, to and for me, it was kind of my mindset and mantra. Kind of was like, don't get too high and don't get too low, All right? And and I know who I was. I hate I hate it when guys would get so excited, like, yeah, I'm this, I'm that. And They go out there, you mess the same play up, and then it's like they just they're ready to jump off a cliff because of they failed. You know, for me, it's like, man, stay, stay the course. You know, and a perfect example of that was my rookie year playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. I didn't understand the rivalry at this time. <laughs> and playing in Heinz Field at a, at a night game, the atmosphere was crazy. And I beat Ike Taylor on a double move. We're down. Fourth quarter, we're driving. Less than a minute. And I go and... Beat Ike so bad, and I jog, and I'm running out, and I don't see the ball thrown. So I kind of slow down a little bit because Joe had to scramble or, like, step to the side, and he just launched it. Anyone that played receiver, probably even baseball for that matter, knows if you slow down, it's hard to catch up to a ball. And so I slowed down looking back, and all of a sudden I see the ball launch, and I tried to speed up. And the ball went off my fingertips. I can still feel it off my fingernails. I literally could not grab the ball. It went straight off my fingertips, right? And I felt like I lost my team the game. That was the one of the worst feelings I ever had. And all I could think of was coming back was like, man, like we talked about that route before. Joe had always said, keep running. No matter what, just keep running. I was more so getting ready to scramble because I didn't see him. And so it's kinda I was kinda in no man's land and ended up getting burned because of it, right? And I was coming back like, man, like I, I hope I get another chance. I hope I get another chance. Like I hope I get another chance. And all of a sudden, like three plays later, Joe comes back to me and I catch the game winner with eight seconds left. And that was honestly a defining moment. In my sports career because I had the opportunity to overcome adversity. Um, Again, a route that I had prepared for and ran a million and one times. And, and, you know, me kind of relaxing cost my team in that moment. But having the opportunity to redeem myself was something that, when you talk about adjusting um, from game into practice, like had I been on this emotional roller coaster of, you know, where am I? Like I butn't practice this and again, like, no, it was just adjust and go. And to be able to seal the deal and hear nothing, it was silent in there. You can just I could hear the little faint cheers of the little Ravens fans there. And to be able to seal the game the game the game in one of the biggest rivalries and ultimately that turned that's one of the biggest moments in, you know, Ravens slash that robbery's history, which is pretty cool, but it meant more to me because I had the opportunity to that that I had the feeling of feeling like I lost the game and then the had the opportunity to redeem myself. From that moment forward, I knew there was never a moment that I couldn't overcome. Same as I felt really my whole life. I always felt like I could overcome, but the problem is in in team sports, there's a clock. <laughs> you may not get your chance. So you had to take advantage the first time. But I was thankful that I had the opportunity to to get another chance. And, you know, that kind of changed my confidence from there on.
0: What's it like to win a Super Bowl? And what's it like to win two Super Bowls?
1: I mean, winning one Super Bowl is a blessing, but to win two, I mean, it's unreal. You, uh, so many great players have never had the opportunity to go to the playoffs or forget even playing in the Super Bowl with, to win. I mean, Something special, I definitely don't take it lightly, but for me, they're two different experiences. I remember my second year, my brother had passed away that season, and being able to win and be a part of that team and celebrate with my family was a special moment and something that I'll never forget. And you fast forward, you know, being young, I mean, you just assume, like, man, we're going to be right back here. And it wasn't like that. For me, Um, played two more years in Baltimore after that, ended up going to San Francisco as a free agent, and it was two tough seasons out in San Fran, and then I ended up going to uh, Philadelphia. And my wife's from outside of Philly playing for the Eagles, knowing how passionate they are, and just really how that organization was starving for a Super Bowl, and to be a part of that was even more special. And it was a different experience, because <laughs> I'm celebrating on the field and now I have two kids. So, like, time had just flew in between then and to be able to cherish it. And they're both, I, people ask which one's better. I couldn't pick one, right? They're both, they, both rings have my name on it. So, I'm thankful for them. Um, but they were just honestly two different experiences because I was in two different points in my life.
0: You mentioned your brother passing that happened during the season.
1: Yeah, I happened during the season. Um, The night before uh, we were supposed to play the, play the Patriots and on a Sunday night game. And I uh, passed away in a motorcycle that night. I was at the hotel.
0: And you ended up playing?
1: Yeah, I went home. to. I'm from Virginia, so I went home to Virginia for a little bit. Not for a little bit. I left that night, the hotel, and was down there all day in Virginia. And then my mom, you know, asked about, you know, if I was going to play, and they wanted me to play. So I went back up to Baltimore, played in the game, and, um, you know, had 100 some yards, a couple touchdowns. And, uh, you know, was able to add some peace, you know, to my family for that night.
0: So your whole tenor just completely changed as you start talking about that. What's that? What emotions does that bring up for you?
1: No, I mean, it's just, you know, that's life. Um, my brother was the first person that's close to me that's passed away. But, I mean, to me, just, you know, it's, I don't know, uh a, a reminder that life is short. You know, it was a, it was a motorcycle accident, but understanding how the motorcycle accident happened is just like it's even more crazy, you know, it wasn't like he was out there as being speed racer or he got hit by a car like it happened out front, you know, our grandmother's house. So it was a legitimate like kind of like almost like a freak accident in a way. And, you know, it was just something a reminder to me. Um, you talk about faith and, and understanding more. Um and I talked to you about my lack of communication with love. Like that was during the time where I was really growing in that area. Um, so I was telling my brothers that I loved him. Um, so he knew that. So I was at peace, um, with everything, but to, to have to play in the game and I went there and I went back to Virginia, um, it was important for me to be there, you know, with my family and to, you know, celebrate his life over time. Um, and, and also to cherish, to make sure that, you know, we're living our our lives the way that we're supposed to.
0: You're playing on Sunday night. And when, when did the tragedy happen?
1: The night before.
0: So, did you sleep?
1: Nah, I slept like an hour or two.
0: So, you get to that game, you get like.
1: I wasn't going to play because I was tired. You know, uh, I was. I just felt like, you know, I didn't want to hurt my team. I was up there. I was going to be there. You know, I'm walking into the stadium. You know, I still kind of get goosebumps thinking about that. You know, uh, the support that the Ravens fans gave me then, you know, in a very emotional time, I was an emotional wreck. Um, you know, trying to deal with and process everything. I mean, I was on the field not even 24 hours after he had passed away, you know, and I had been between Baltimore and Virginia. So, um, you know, it was just a a crazy experience. And it's probably honestly one of the other reasons that had me so tied to the city of Baltimore is that, you know, the way that they embraced me. And I can't even just say Baltimore. like The NFL as a whole, um, for sure, I felt, you know, their prayers and my family felt their prayers and support as well.
0: It's one of the best games of your career, right?
1: Yeah, it was for sure. Um especially in that in that moment, I mean just to win and had the uh you know, it was a little light in a, during a dark time for my family.
0: So we're recording this right now where it feels like it's the end of the world. <laughs> the coronavirus is shutting schools down and the stock market is plummeting and people are getting sick and there's just this unknown and you had this tragic thing happen and you still went to work the next day and didn't just go but you thrived any idea how you did that
1: you just go do it you know I always people people pass away every day you know i think kobe bryant is a great example of a a great man, great athlete that a lot of people looked up to, and he means a lot to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people were hurt by his loss. But every day while we're speaking, someone loses their Kobe Bryant. And I think the more we understand that aspect of life that we hate talking about, which is death, um, I think we would honestly live our lives better if we understood that tomorrow really isn't promised. Like, it has to take for a motorcycle accident in my brother's case or a helicopter accident in Kobe's case. to continue to say life is too short live for uh, you know make sure you're living the right way and, and taking care of yourself and telling people that you love them like we have to rely on the coronavirus wash your hands take care of yourself like why did it take for this scare to have you doing things that you should have been doing anyway or to provide for your family to take care of your family think about this as a businessman and, and someone that travels yourself, the coronavirus is forcing some people to be home who will be away from their families. You know, who their jobs won't let them travel, right? So they're going to have a reminder and realize how much they are gone, you know, how much they are away from their kids when they're home, stuck with them for a few days. And it's just a different kind of experience, you know? And it's a reminder. I think even in the work field, I learned that through ball. My son isn't even old, but that he was a major reason of why, you know, the the lack of stability I had. Had my son been three, two, three years old, not in school yet, I'd probably still be playing. You know, I probably would have sucked it up for another year. But he had started kindergarten, and I was like, no, nah, I want him to have stability. I want him to be around the same people and grow up around the same people that he started with because I didn't have that opportunity.
0: I want to come back to what you're talking about, but I want to just close the loop on that Sunday night game. Can you reflect on what those 24 hours were like for you and what your mindset was like to still, you said, just, you know, keep doing it, keep going. And the reason I'm, I'm just, I'm on that is because I think to your point, all of us are going to have, Something if we live long enough, we're gonna lose someone close to us. Mm-hmm. We're gonna experience tragedy. No one is immune to that. That's part of living a long life, mm-hmm. and most people want to live a long life, then you're gonna have to deal with some shit right, and straight up so like from the outside looking in, I'm gonna say, and I remember when that happened, and I remember watching that game. And I'll just give you my perspective is one of all, right? Or Brett Favre after his dad passed away and sort of being all of that, or um, Isaiah Thomas, the point guard, the the second Isaiah Thomas after he lost a sibling and playing amazing. And we talked about post-traumatic growth earlier. And I just would love to learn from you about your mindset and your framework. And it's selfish. It's coming from a place of, I think, whenever that happens for me, I like, yes, I hope to be there for my family and I hope to be at my best when my best is needed. And I'm sure my listeners feel the same. So if you could, if you could share any of your perspective, I think we all would, would benefit from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's Honestly, there's no choice, right? Like life's going to throw things at you. And it's not about what happens to you, it's about how you respond. And I'm not saying that to discredit the way people mourn or discredit the way that people feel because it's a real situation. And, I was willing to not play if my family wanted that to be the case, and I also went out there and was running on fumes and played one of the best games, of my career. You're not a hundred percent, right? right? Yeah, you haven't slept,
0: so how no. do you how do you give a hundred percent of whatever I you mean, had?
1: You, you had, I mean, it's it's in you, you know. That's one of the powerful things about being a human being is that we think we are. We put a ceiling on our limits. We think because we're so routine that oh man. If I don't have this, then I'm not going to be able to perform. At a certain, if I don't have sleep, then I'm not going to be able to perform. Ninety nine percent of the time, I feel that way. By the way, so I'm not saying that to judge anyone, but there of it is. Even when you think there's a limit, there isn't. And for me, you know, if I was going to step out there, I was going to do do the right thing. And so, what were you saying? I was going to play well. Saying, my warm up was yeah, the same. It was the same. So, you, Everything you stuck was with the, the routine,
0: same. but you don't have as much sleep. You no. mentioned being hangry. There's earlier. no excuses. Like, you probably didn't my, fuel your body the way. Right. But you went in and said, no excuses, go out, do no your job. No excuses,
1: yeah. My team My team needed me. If I'm going to play, this isn't no pity thing. I'm playing, I'm playing because the Baltimore Ravens, we need to win. We need to be the Patriots so that we're not playing them on the road we ended up having to do that anyways but the goal is so that we can get home field advantage that we can control that and uh that my mindset was that you know again i lost my brother but you know he had a job to do it's honestly that simple
0: but like i'm hearing you say we ravens we 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 it sounds like you went into this place of something bigger than yourself
1: for sure i mean i was playing for my family you know, most of the time, you know, people say, "Yeah, I'm playing for my family." Like, I'm playing because I want to win. I'm playing for the group of people in this locker room. An extension of that is, I'm representing my family and everything that I do. But on that night, I was playing for my family, um, for sure. And it was just a, a different feeling. The support we had, and you know, like you, like listen, life is gonna be tough. Like things are gonna happen. You're not gonna be able to have any control over it. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna sting. And at the end of the day, when it all settles down and reality sets in, you're going to have to get up. And you're going to have to go. And that was my moment for me kind of right away.
0: And then uh, just to close the loop of what you're talking about with people being home and opportunities to be with their family, I had on the podcast a guy named Ryan Holiday, who's written best-selling books, The Obstacle is the Way, is one of uh, my favorite books. And he actually talks about death a lot. And so what you're hitting on like he is constantly trying to remind himself that death is inevitable and it can mm-hmm. happen at any time. And he says for him, that helps him live his life fully every day because he knows, like you said about sports, the same thing with life time expires. Like we right. lose it.
1: It's not a matter of if, but when.
0: It is. So mm-hmm. I think there is something to that. And as I'm thinking about the next couple weeks, there's a massive opportunity to get to spend time with your family, to read a book, to meditate, to go for a swim. I mean, whatever it might be. And I hope people, including myself, use it as an opportunity to live differently and get us out of maybe the day-to-day grind or whatever we're doing, because those moments are precious, man. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I want to just thank you for your time. Uh, It's been awesome to learn from you. And hear how you're learning and growing yourself. And I just want to give you a platform to promote your foundation or anything else that you want to promote. I know you're active on social media, uh, very active on social media. <laughs> uh, we were talking about before we fired up the mics, how you're, you're really intentional about what you put out on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And I know you care deeply about the world and humanity and how we're living. And so if you want to promote anything that you think deserves to be promoted, I just want to give you a megaphone to do that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, for sure it's going to be the Level 82 Fund, formerly the Tory Smith Family Fund. Um, it's what we do um, in terms of our philanthropic work. And we're taking over a rec center and running our programs and everything through it at Baltimore, through with, in partnership with Baltimore Rec and Parks. And it's a big deal because, honestly, this wouldn't have happened had I not retired. You know, again, I feel like everything kind of happens for a reason, and We've been doing a lot of things after school programs and things that kind of help the the kids, but to have your own space that you can go to, you don't have to rely on a school. You don't have to rely on so many different things. Um, Having a center, you can impact not only that child, but that child's siblings, that child's parents. We can try to do things to try to bring families together to make sure that we're doing that we can provide therapy sessions. We can talk about issues and challenges that we all have and try to figure out ways to help each other because Oftentimes when you're in these communities, um, I'm only saying it from my own personal experience, a lot of issues happen because of trauma and the way people deal with it. Like, you know, um, my family, my mother experienced a lot of trauma. Um, my grandmother experienced a lot of trauma. And we're expecting them to be the ones that stop it. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm going to be the one to stop these generational issues that we have. And I'm thankful that I had my wife to help me with that and same the same wife that's going to help me and do our part to try to change the community. So we had the opportunity to change the community, one family and one neighborhood at a time. So I'm looking forward to that responsibility and teaching them things that I didn't know, whether that's financial literacy um, and eliminating the stigma in black communities where mental health is a weakness. Um, and just being comfortable with learning and, and stepping out of your comfort zone and, and and trying to chase more. You know, I always tell people, like, I made it to where I am because of the belief and the blueprint that was instilled in me, right? And I stuck with it. But oftentimes people don't believe in themselves or even try to create a blueprint because no one's ever provoked them to think about it. So um, that's what, you know, we want to try to do, um, give them the tools they need give them the resources that they may not have Being in that community, literally a, a huge digital divide. When you talk about technology, um, lack of resources all the way around. And so we want to try to help be that vessel and be the village, be a part of the village because it's going to take everyone, you know, the, the city, the community, the, the, the businesses, everyone. I want everyone in on trying to figure out what we can do to help better the city.
0: And if people want to follow you on social, how do they do that?
1: You can follow me at Torrey Smith, W-R-T-O-R-R-E-Y, Smith, W-R. That's on uh, Twitter and Instagram. It might be a little dangerous place. Uh, you can see my my kids on there a lot, family on there a lot, and um, see me a lot of what's going on in the community work because it's a big responsibility for us.
0: Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Tori, thank you so much for your time, your vulnerability, your, your willingness to step into some spaces that are maybe not always the most comfortable to talk about. And I just appreciate you and your time and your mind. And I'm excited to see what this next chapter of your life brings.
1: I yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Evan.
0: Oh, Tori's also launching a podcast soon. So Yeah, y'all stay tuned for yeah. that
1: one. Follow on Twitter as well. But it's gonna be called Trending Thoughts and it'll be about a combination of trending topics that may happen in the real world or it may be trending uh th- topics that are in my world, you know, whether that's death, whether that's dealing with the championship mindset or overcoming adversity or school diversity or the criminal justice system or whatever it may be. If you know me, you know, I'm kind of all over the place and what's at the top of my mind at the moment. So I'm looking forward to that and hope y'all tune in as well.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Tori.
1: Appreciate you.
0: Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is
1: this week's episode jam. And then when we get to field, my warm up is the exact same for the game as it is for practice. Um, and, so that feels the same to me. You know, I'm ready to roll. I don't. I take warm-ups seriously. Um, you know, when we're out there and we're running routes, I'm not jogging through it. You know, the lights in the stadium are a little bit different than they are on your practice field. So when we're running routes on there with the quarterbacks, my routes are real. Like, I'm getting out of my breaks. I am going because I need to know how it feels. I need to feel the grass. I need to know... Is the grass slippery? Is it going to come up? It's like Pittsburgh whose grass sucks, right? Is it long where you, know, you make it stuck a little more? Or is it turf field where it's going to be simple, but did it rain? Is the it, is it turf wet to where, where, to where it might be a little slick? And you don't know these things unless you went full speed on it. And I walk up that field feeling confident about, you know, my my footing and, and getting in and out of my breaks. And ultimately, I've caught the ball. Feeling those lights, and it's a little bit different. It's not when, when even when fans come in, right? So it, it all these things are a little different. But to me, it's like, man, I'm, I'm ready to go.